Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way, or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey, Smart Mamas, welcome back to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast. Today, we have Lisa Kefauver, who is the host of the Reimagining Grief podcast and the Reimagining Grief webpage, here to talk to us today about the hellacious year that we've just all been through. So welcome, yeah. Lisa, and we're excited to talk to you. First, can you help us uh, understand how you ended up in a career related to grief? Yeah, not. thank you so much to all, to all of you for having me on this show. I love what you're doing, and I'm so happy to be talking about grief. Um, most people don't grow up and think like, I want to have a career in grief, not probably every young girl's dream but I sort of feel like I've been on this path um, for a long time. So the short answer is I spent a good part of my career as a social worker and a narrative therapist working in nonprofit spaces in adoption and foster care, which you can imagine has a lot of grief aspects and component, working in family services and crisis intervention also has that and public housing systems. And then in 2011, after a a year's worth of misdiagnosis, my husband died in my arms from a brain tumor that had been um, not diagnosed. So I found myself a widow at age 40, um, a single mom to my seven-year-old daughter, and continued doing work in the nonprofit space, founding a, a cancer care organization to help other families. But the pivot really came a few years ago when I lost yet another person in my life, And I still saw the ways in which people are misunderstanding and completely ignoring all the ways in which we grieve and how to show up for ourselves and show up for each other. So I took the 20 something years I spent as a helper, as a supporter, as a public spokesperson and a writer and turned that passion into the work that I do now at Reimagining Grief. So yeah, I've been lately thinking about calling myself a grief activist because that's what I feel really is my role is that I'm really helping to name and make visible this thing 100% of us experience in our lives. That is beautiful, Lisa, and I'm so sorry for the loss that you have experienced, and yet I feel a sense of how it is going to help all of us move forward, because you're right, we all experience grief to some degree at some point in our lives. So thank you for that. Thanks. I think that the hardest part to even imagine about your story that, and we have a several CRNA moms in our group who, you know, within the past few years have lost a spouse completely unexpectedly, whether it be, you know, like a sudden heart attack or an accident or something that no one was prepared for. I think the hardest part, I mean, I don't know what the hardest part is, but to me, it seems like one of the hardest parts is you don't know what's coming. 
you can't prepare for it in any way. And it's like a sudden shock to your life and your system that you never imagined yourself in. I mean, obviously, if you know someone's terminally ill, not that it makes it less painful, but Mm -hmm. at least you're not caught off guard. You know what I mean? Like you hopefully Mm -hmm. have some time to prepare or think about things or maybe go through some of the grief process. Whereas I can't even imagine like everything being fine. You're going about your business and then like, bam, yeah, you know, complete. Which, and it's hard for people like us who love control and we love to plan and we love to maintain like, you know, it just makes you realize you really have zero control over this in life. Everything you just said also, I can imagine all of your listeners are feeling like you could use that same description to d- to describe this last year we had. We were all walking around under the illusion that we had some kind of control, right? And that we had some kind of expectation of a future. And then bam, this thing happened and we were all turned upside down. And not to sound pessimistic, but I think if you wanna see some beauty in what this year brought us is that it is a reminder that control is an illusion, right? That the expectation of control is an illusion and how we get more practice of being present to this moment, to what we value, to where we invest our time and what's worthwhile. And I think that's some of the shift that happened this year. You know, if I might just describe a little bit just to help orient our conversation around grief. Grief, I think it's a word that everybody throws around. None of us know really how to talk about it or really what to do because we live in a pretty grief deficit culture, I would say. So having trained as a narrative therapist and really being kind of a writer and speaker at heart, I use this metaphor to describe grief. And that might be like a a great grounding place for our conversation today. So one way to think about it is that our lives, our identities really are built by the stories we tell of our experiences. So we have millions of experiences in our lives, but we are storytellers and we make meaning by the stories we tell of both the experiences we've already had, but also the stories that we tell about someday I'm gonna be a mom, a sister, a you know, doctor, a nurse, I'm gonna do these things, right? So we have these stories and that's what builds our identity. And a death loss or a traumatic event or a, I don't know, global pandemic is akin to the shredding of the manuscript of our lives. And it's handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live our lives. So we are navigating without a script. And the work of grief, the sort of some people call it the journey of grief, the sort of healing work is really the effort to rewrite the story of our lives and live into the story of our lives. So when you think about grief in that really expansive sense, as opposed to the very narrow definition of death loss, you might even think about those people, including me or others who, when their families or loved ones are are being ill from Alzheimer's or some kind of terminal illness, and they're having that anticipatory grief, the story of who they were and who that person was is kind of coming unraveled, right? Or again, when the pandemic hit and maybe people lost jobs or they lost their livelihoods or they had to move, all of the stories that helped us feel in control and like we knew who we are, it's like someone just tore up the big script and was like, okay, now walk and talk and navigate your life. And that's why it feels so disorienting to all of us. Absolutely. I think that's the hardest part is it's disorienting. Yeah. And uncomfortable. You don't know what to do or where to go. 
it's like, well, I mean, as humans, we, you guys know this, I'm preaching to the choir. You all are nurses, but right. As humans, sort of our survival instinct is we have to know besides our stress response, which grief absolutely triggers us into fight, flight, stress response for sure. But just as humans, we have to know like where is danger. And I know I have to have a story because that's sort of helped us move from kind of the cave to being able to be dreamers and thinkers and astronauts, et cetera. So we have to sort of hold on to that storying aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's really confusing and hard to like even know how to think when you when the story that you could count on is is no longer there for you. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, I, I understand that your husband passed kind of unexpectedly, even though you had been dealing with it for a long time. How did you end up in this space though? Because when that happened, I'm sure that you had two options, right? Like you could lay down and die yeah. or, you know, just take a completely different path in life, yeah. or you could make something of it. And you had made this of it, which is really impressive and really, um, I think challenging for a lot of people to imagine. So can you talk to us a little bit about how did you even end up with this idea? And then what did you do with that idea to end up in this space? Yeah. Well, you know, people always say to lots of grievers, I'm sure your listeners can have heard things like this before. I don't know how you do it or you're so strong. And the truth is when you're faced with these cards, you don't have a choice. You just do. And all of us will do something. So I don't like to take any special credit that I'm did something spectacular. I think a couple things were happening. I was already a social worker. I was the, the clinical director of a big family services agency at the time. I also had a seven-year-old daughter and I knew that I really didn't have the choice to lay down and die because I was the only parent in her life. And so I think in some ways, though it was made grieving more difficult because I also had to care for another human being, it also in some ways kept me grounded because I knew hey, I've got this other human to take care of. So that my journey from, from that, which happened in 2011 to Reimagining Grief, which I founded in 2019, again, I look back and think about all the places that it was storing, but I returned as the clinical director after a week and a half mm. because my bosses called me who are a lovely people if they listen to the show and but they're and social worky kind of people like me but we have such a grief deficit culture which is one of the reasons I go into companies hospitals and organizations to actually help us better understand grief grief culture and grief policy because as individuals we're really bad at grief and then as institutions we're triple bad at grief mm -hmm. so I went back to work after a week and a half seeing clients running the services organization through the years, I stepped down from that because that was, as you can, can imagine, a 70-hour-a-week job, which didn't really jive with being a full-time single mom. I went on to work and run a program that allowed me some more flexibility in public housing. And then my first foray into sort of making meaning out of both my career as a helper, but also this personal loss that I faced was when I moved to Austin, Texas in 2014 and helped co-found a program called the CareBox program, which delivers care supplies to cancer patients and their families. And that was sort of my first foray into really understanding how can I make some meaning? How can I help others because we know the literature tells us that actually acts of service and kindness actually help us heal, right? Helps us regain a sense of agency and, and meaning. Um, Excuse me. Yeah. I, I just want to back up a little. What yeah. do you send to like cancer families and 
Like what types of things do you send? So that organization, which is still in business, folks can look them up and support the organization, even though I'm no, no longer there. I will support every nonprofit I ever worked at. So one of the things we were trying to tackle is all of the, you know, as you all know, that a lot of cancer care is actually happening in the home. It's very little intervention. You know, you go into a hospital, but you're at home. So what we were finding from the studies is that nutrition and injuries from falls and infections, so things like nutritional drinks and wound care and stabilizer bars in the bathroom. Those were the kind of things that were actually increasing risks of sort of injury and sometimes death in cancer patients. And so we paired this energy that the world had about helping, you know, when you know someone in cancer and you want to help them and you don't know what to do with the needs of the cancer patients. So we created basically an online matching system and said like, here's a profile of a patient And then people who weren't maybe able to help their grandma when they were facing whatever could go on and basically shop and donate. And we delivered on average about $500 in care supplies to each patient family. Oh, I love that. So it was really meaningful. And actually in that work, I started to see that was the seeds that got planted to reimagine grief. These families were being cared for for their body, particularly the patient. But I was seeing just even being on the periphery because it was not a clinical role. I had done clinical before. This was more, I was like the public spokesperson, the TV, the volunteer coordinator. I mean, I was everything. It was a two-person nonprofit for a while. But but what I was seeing there was hospital systems and, and care systems were caring for the bodies of the patients, but they weren't caring for the hearts and the emotion and the anticipatory grief and the ambiguous loss. And then in the aftermath of a death loss for even for the care. I mean, there were certainly referral systems to providers, but I started to understand even then, even agencies or organizations that you think would have some grief competency were really, you know, kind of frightened by the conversations and felt like, They didn't know how to do that. And what we know from the literature too is the more people can be open to the anticipatory grief or even name ambiguous loss, anticipatory grief, it doesn't prevent you from having grief, of course, when the death loss comes, but we know it helps people build this kind of capacity and resiliency to navigate those difficult times. So even in that early work at Carebox program, I started to see there's this grief culture that's just not working. And I still had in the back of my mind, I can't have been through all of these experiences. And there's some other losses that we don't have time to talk about that I'd experienced in my life, but I can't have personally and professionally seen and been exposed to all the different ways people grieve and all the different ways that our larger culture, our organizations and institutions don't support them and then do nothing with it. And I became a writer and a spokesperson. So I, I loved sharing stories. So I thought this couldn't all be happening circum, like coincidentally. I needed to, to do something with it. And uh, I lost a good friend. I was both with my husband when he died. And then about five years later with my friend Joe when he died, working at a different organization, doing more fundraising. And then I actually had a health scare myself. They found a tumor on my uterus. It turned out to be fine. But that was sort of the moment where I thought, I have to be doing something because that actually brought up a lot of grief for me, the sort of navigating of the medical system and the reminder of the ways in which my husband was mistreated and and that time. And so that was literally when I sort of quit my job and founded Reimagining Grief and founded my podcast. And that was the beginning of this work. I knew that my mission was to change the narratives of grief 
to shift our culture. And I knew that I wanted very early in my company that I wanted to do that at the individual level. So I see people you know, in one-on-one sessions to help people navigate grief. I knew I wanted to do it at the sort of cultural level, which is why I started my podcast. So I have authentic conversations with people of all kinds of grief. And I'm really trying to model and debunk all the myths and the garbage that get in people's way. Grieving is hard, but it's made harder, as particularly in U.S. culture, because of all of the myths and garbage that we are taught about grief. And I also knew very clearly, having worked in institutions, we got to change institutional culture and not just bereavement policies, which are horrible, like three mm-hmm. days right after somebody dies. What is I was the- just going to say that? Yeah. You know, if you lose yeah. a child, it's three days off. Yeah. If you're lucky, and that's actually not federally mandated. So I think there's like two states that require some short amount of leave, but other places actually don't. And if you think about the Family Medical Leave Act, which actually just allows you to not be fired, but not paid while you take time off. And even before the pandemic, I mean, my husband died on a Tuesday. I didn't have his memorial till the Friday. So even with those three days leave, I was supposed to go back to work on Monday. Right. And right now, of course, people can't even really bury their loved ones or have proper memorial services. So I knew really quickly, though, just to to say something that I think gets misunderstood, the fight for more comprehensive bereavement leave, both longer days, but also flexible leave. So allowing it to happen over time because grief is not done in the first three days. And then you're like, fine, Mm -hmm. you know, back to whatever, but also expanding who people can grieve over. You know, I think our family cultures and our love, you know, our sort of community systems have changed over time. We have very old thinking. But the third layer that I really try to tackle through workshops, through leadership retreats, through individual support in organizations is the culture in organizations. So we live in a very capitalistic, productivity-obsessed culture. So even if your company adopts some kind of policy, you know, let's say generous, like Facebook, I think went to 20 days. If your leaders don't take time off, if your leaders are sending you Slack channel messages while you're on leave, right? If you're being penalized or talked about, or you don't see other people doing that, then you're not going to feel like this is safe for me to do because probably I'm going to come back and I'm not going to get the promotion or I might get fired or something else. So we can't just change we can't just change policies. We have to actually change hearts and minds. And that's going after culture and practices yeah. too. Yeah, because then the guilt sets in for sure. I love the way that you have such a big picture on this, where it's not just an individual person grieving, it's yeah. issues at so many different levels in our culture. Now we you know, we've kind of established here that that we do have an unhealthy or not necessarily unhealthy, but a challenge grieving as a culture. And how does grief manifest in our culture? And I think it, it manifests in ways that people don't necessarily realize. So like, how is grief manifested in our lives? Yeah. No, I would call it, an un- we have an unhealthy relationship with grief in our culture. You don't have to say it, but I'll say it, I think. <laughs> I do not think we, I use usually swear words, which I'm not going to use in here to describe that. But when I talk about our grief, (laughs) okay. When I talk about our grief culture, 
And that's really important. And the reason that I can't separate, just quickly to say, the reason I can't separate the individual's grief from the cultural grief is part of why we struggle and suffer as individual grievers is because of these meta systems. It's because of the policies and the practices. It's because of the things people say to us, you sh- he's in a better place now, or haven't mm-hmm. you moved on yet, or all those stupid, horrible things people say. So you can't really isolate the griever. And in fact, our systems have tried to isolate the griever, and then they sort of pathologize grief in a lot of ways. When you think about DSM diagnoses, but also, you know, if in six months you're still crying, you know, like, oh, she must have complicated grief. Maybe, but probably not. Probably she's just grieving or he's just grieving. So one of the things that I think, I appreciate you asking that question, Lacey, because one of the things I think we all think and I would have thought this before I sort of became a personal expert on grief myself, is that grief is just sadness and crying. Maybe it looks a lot like depression. So maybe it's kind of lethargy or hopelessness. But grief is not just an emotional state. So there's, first of all, if you even just think about the emotional realm in our grief, it's anger, it's confusion, it's guilt and shame, sorrow, There can even sometimes be relief if there was a long illness. I think people don't talk about the sort of emotional spectrum because in this, again, culturally, we like happy. That's kind of the one emotion we're allowed to have and everything else is like, you're not doing something right. It's so true. Right? It's sort of like (laughs) if you're not happy, it's not because you're in a bad system or or something genuinely bad happened. It's because you're not doing you're not doing the top ten lists or the five ways to thing. And if you would just do the five ways to thing, you'd be happy, and then everything would be okay. So I think part of what we need to expand is just even all of the emotions and grief, in particular for the griever themselves. So when they have moments of relief, maybe or uncontrolled anger, they don't think something's wrong with me, and that's what happens. That's the damage that happens. People sort of pathologize themselves. So I would say one important thing for your listeners to think about is grief comes with the, if you think of the emotion wheel, you guys all probably studied in some psychology class somewhere. Grief is all of those, can can represent all of those emotions. I think the other thing to name about grief is it's a normal response to loss. And yet we live in this culture that says it's problematic because it gets in the way of capitalism and productivity and people's comfort because we're not comfortable with hard emotions. But grief also represents a lot of shifts in our cognition. I think that's something that's really important. You all know this. You're, I feel even nervous talking to medical experts about this, but grief triggers a stress response in our bodies, right? So we are faced with a scary situation, even if it's not some kind of traumatic death loss, even if it was peaceful or they were five years old and it was quiet in their time, again, our story gets disrupted. And so we become very stressed and we know what happens when your body becomes stressed. Your prefrontal cortex goes offline, right? Your digestive system goes offline, all the part, you know, your sleep hormones, everything that helps you regulate your body kind of goes offline. And the problem is our stress response was meant to help us run from the saber-toothed tiger for like a minute. But when you're in deep grief in those early days, you're kind of sitting in the stew of grief. So I'd like to remind people of that because there's something very real called grief brain or brain fog. So Mm -hmm. people cannot 
keep track of to-dos. They can't remember things. And then when they don't know, and that can last six months, a year, longer, depending on the circumstances, depending on what help the person gets. So again, if you as the griever don't know that, or if you're a boss or a colleague or a family member, and you don't know that it's very normal to be forgetful, to not remember things, then you start to judge well, she's just not the same or he's just not the same and he can't remember. And you don't build in systems. I always tell early grievers like sticky notes are your best friends, calendar reminders are your best friends, auto payment reminders. If you are wanting to help somebody who's grieving and you're close with them, help them set up everything they can with automatic systems and alerts, et cetera. So we have our emotional impact of grief. We have the sort of cognitive effect of grief. And then you have to think about what might get us closer to the conversation of the kinds of grief that we're experiencing in this time of the pandemic is the financial impact of grief, depending on who the lost loved one was or the um, sort of physical. So maybe I ended up having to sell my home and move somewhere else because I could no longer afford, you know, we couldn't be in the home that we were in. So the grief kind of heck attached attacks in a way emotional, cognitive, financial. A lot of times people end up losing people that were close to them. That's what's called secondary losses because people can't, don't know how to show up for you in your grief. I had people who I thought were going to be by my side who just didn't, they got uncomfortable. My story just felt too, you know, intense and they couldn't stay around. So the cascading effect of grief is far beyond sad crying, which I think is pretty much every Hollywood movie you've ever seen is like someone dies, they're sad and crying. Maybe they show you anger and then they meet somebody and fall in love and they're fine. And that's just not the full spectrum of grief. And again, if we buy into that myth that it is, then every single person who's having all the messiness of grief, which that's, grief is messy, are thinking, it's not just because grief is messy. They're thinking I'm messy. Something's wrong with me. And I just, that's why I do this work. I get, you can tell I get so excited talking about it because like grief is hard, but people do not need to put all those shoulds on themselves. They don't need to should on themselves with all these false messages that we've learned from our culture, from our families about what grief should look like when that's not actually what grief does look or feel like. So what do you suggest to those that are like right in the thick of it, right in the deep, you know, emotional grief? Yeah. How, how was the best way to cope? I think it's kind of layered. I think, you know, start with to the degree that you have some sort of cognitive capacity. Think about what are the tools that have helped you navigate hard times in the past, even though you've never faced this grief. Maybe you know that meditation has always helped you, or maybe you know exercise or nature or painting or something. So I start with, what do you already know about yourself or have friends who love you to help remind you, what do you know? You might not be able to exercise those things right now, but start with what you already know that are tools that help you. The second I would say is ditch every expectation you have of yourself. So like I was saying, like get people to help you do reminders, get accept help. We have such a resistance to yeah. accepting, whether it's people taking your kids to school for you, bringing you meals, helping you set up auto pay, mowing your lawn, doing your grocery shopping, whatever. We have this resistance because we, again, think we should be able to. Your job 
basically is to grieve. And every job that you can allow somebody else to help you with, which by the way, people want to help you. So they're looking for something, let them help you. I, for me, mindfulness meditation has been a huge source of being able to navigate the very horrendous, difficult emotional landscape or hellscape, I say sometimes of grief. Also seeing somebody, I mean, as a provider, I was immediately seeing somebody for help. We, it's important. Our friends and family are great. And if you have a loved one or a colleague or a friend who's a good listener, that's great. The problem is most of us think that when we see someone in pain, especially someone we love, that it's our job to fix them. Mm-hmm. So when you start to tell your story, instead of holding space and bearing witness for you, your friends out of very good intentions, not out of any malice, well, what about, haven't you tried, you should do, my cousin Susie did this and they're in fix-it mode. And the minute you start being in fix-it mode for a griever, the minute you're telling the griever, I can't trust you to hold my story. My pain is too hard for you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to rely on you. So the beauty about accessing a grief professional, whether it's someone like me who offers grief guide, or if you already have a psychotherapist or a spiritual leader, if you're spiritual, is they're more trained to do that sort of honoring and bearing witness practice. And they're not rushing to fix you. And we can't, we have to be held in our pain before we can metabolize it. It has to be sort of witnessed. And professionals, not all professionals, but generally speaking, professionals are able to have that distance because they don't have the baggage of being your parent or your sister or your friend or your boss, right? They can have that emotional distance from you. So those are some of the tools that I think, I mean, there's lots more, but I would say all of those tools can be really helpful and minimize your expectations about what your capacities are. That doesn't mean you're not going to regain them someday, but the minute you ignore them and stuff them down and try to sort of rush through grief, it's you're just dragging it along with you like that piece of toilet paper that's stuck to the bottom of your shoe, right? And you're running down the path, it's coming with you. So at some point, you're going to have to face your grief. So spend that time in those early days caring for it. I guess I would say one other thing. I know my answer is long, but I think this is an important one. Sleep, Mm. nutrition, right? We just talked about all the cascading effects of the stress response in our body. So the last thing that we need, which is hard sometimes to sleep, depending on what the loss was, but the degree to which you can create a good sleep regimen, even if that means napping on top of nighttime sleeping, the degree to which you can have good nutrition means that your body is being restored to be able to handle some of these other things that you're going to have to handle. Because for most people who faced a death loss are now navigating whole new systems, right? Paperwork and legal and memorial and estates and finding insurance for the first time or whatever they're trying to do. So sleep and nutrition are huge in just helping stabilize like our baseline, basically, if you will. That makes sense. Yeah. I I know Ellen's got a question and then I've got one before we wrap up too. You go ahead, Ellen. Okay. Yeah. I Well, first of all, I want to say your answer was so good and so on point because we are actually fixers. Like the three of us in our community, yeah, <laughs> what we do for a living. I know. So I mean, I, yeah, and you as well, yeah. But I mean, yeah. like for some of our listeners, you know, like in other career fields, 
we're all fixers as human beings, but I mean, our job legitimately is to fix. So when I can't fix someone immediately, I almost take it on as my own personal burden. Yes. And I think that's why it's so hard for some people because now it becomes about them and less about the person grieving. That's exactly what I always say. We, you, you end up turning the focus Mm -hmm. on you. Yeah. And if, and I get that because I have a lot of friends who are in like the medical community. And of course, really sort of theological, like your training is like your job is to fix Mm -hmm. literally. So one way to reframe that for all the nurses that are listening to think about that. And even as moms, this is a mom's group, right? Like we are bored. Like we must fix all problems for our kids. Right. And if we don't, it's like something's wrong with somehow it's a failure. Yes. So one reframing I would invite you guys to think about is that by actually offering empathetic space, by holding space, by affirming, acknowledging, by matching their energy, by saying, yeah, that effing sucks or whatever they say, sort of mirroring back to them. Even if they're saying things like, I don't know how I'm ever going to go on or blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you really think somebody's in danger, that's different. But if they're saying that, that's normal things to express to say, I can imagine that you would be thinking that way, given the loss, like I'm here, but I'm not trying to fit. Like that's actually, you're helping them heal. So if you can shift your mind, which is hard because we're like, get you to a doctor, go do a thing, we're action oriented. But if you can remember that that, if you ask any griever further down the road, who was the most helpful to you besides the people who maybe mowed your lawn or went grocery shopping for you? This, those people are awesome too. Yeah. My friends had a meal train for like months. Otherwise I never, my daughter, we would not have eaten. So kudos to the ladies who did that. But when I think back of the people who helped me the most, is the people who came and sat down on the floor with me while I was crying and didn't say a word. They just nodded and listened. They hugged me. They mirrored my swear words. They just held space for me. And those are the people who, when I think about the grief that I've experienced, were the most helpful. Not the people who came and told me the way that they're uh, this other widow they know did this thing and it helped them so much and blah, blah, blah. That was like, okay, F you. I'm like, I don't need your advice. Yeah. No, I wanted to add to, if you have good intentions to help someone through, you know, grief or a hard time. I recently have, have been going through a health crisis and I've had so many people reach out and offer, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Like Mm. never in a million years, am I going to call you and say, Hey, I need someone to pick my daughter up from school. I'm not going to do that. You know what I mean? So either just like, just do it. Just do it or say it. I love that. I love that, Crystal. That's so helpful. That is great advice. I have a whole sort of part of my work is helping train grief supporters how to show up. I launched an entire line of empathy cards to help you find language when you're at a loss for words. But a lot of the work that I do in my writing is geared towards people. And it's exactly what you just said is so important because we're not good at asking for help or receiving help. So when you just say, can I help you generally? We're like, well, I'm not going to ask you to like, I don't want to be an inconvenience, but I definitely had friends who are like, Hey, like my friend Julie was running an art camp the next week because there's still a week left in summer. And she just said, Hey, I'm running this camp. I know Lily doesn't have anywhere to be. How about I bring her to camp? She can just have a spot in the camp. Perfect. Right. Right. And sometimes it might be a miss and don't get all butt hurt when somebody says, no, thank (laughs) you. You know, but if, you know, you say like, Hey, my kid goes to school with your kid. How about for the next two weeks? I just drive them for you. So you don't have to. 
Yeah. But try to show up with something that's practical. Or do you want somebody to come before the pandemic and hopefully after? Do you want somebody to come just sit with you at the appointments? Mm-hmm. Just offer something. If you know that person well enough, try. Try to offer something concrete. Because that might even be the door to say, well, that thing that you offered isn't helpful. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, this other thing would be really helpful. And it right. kind of opens the conversation a little bit more effectively than let me know. Yeah. Yes. Like the help I really accepted was we're going to make you dinner one night this week. Um, would Wednesday be okay? Yeah, sure. You know, exactly. I mean? you can't say no to that. And it's so appreciated. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good point, Crystal. Such a good point. Yeah. So this like works perfectly with what I wanted to ask. And that is we have been helping communicating with people online and we've been helping them grieve online. And so um, my, and my brother died 10 years ago. So 2010, right. As Facebook was like becoming bigger. And even then, like, you know, people would just say in a comment, like, Oh, I'm praying for you. I'm my, I'm so sorry for your loss, all of those things. And they meant nothing. They meant nothing to me, but yet I see those posts. I see people in our group posts about how their child died. And all I can think of is my heart breaks for you. I'm so, so sorry. And I genuinely mean that, but I know they're reading that like, doesn't mean a thing to me. How can we help people when we're connecting with them virtually? Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I don't, the truth is, I don't like, I don't like, I'm sorry for your loss. That drives me nuts. And actually one of my cards is like, I'm sorry for your loss. And then you keep crossing it off. And then at the very end, it says, you know, like I'm holding you in my heart. The truth is some people don't mind it. So there isn't one perfect expression. I think we need to think about, are we offering sympathy, which comes across as pity, which no one wants to be pitied, or are we offering empathy? Are we meeting them and holding them where they at? My cards are actually called empathy cards, not sympathy cards for just that reason, because no one wants to be pitied. So depends on the relationship, of course, if it's just a neighbor you met once or somebody versus, you know, your best friend. What's more important is the um, tone, the intent, and then the follow-up back to what Crystal was talking about. So I use an expression, I'm holding you and I'll name the person There's a myth that we shouldn't name the person because somehow it's going to make the person sad. And in my estimation, my experience, people want to help you, people want help carrying their memory forward. So I always say, let's say if it was Rob, what was your brother's name, Lacey? Um, His name was Tanner. Tanner. So I would say to you, Lacey, I'm holding you and Tanner in my heart. One of the things I love to do, again, it depends on the timing, Ask the person about them. What was your what was a favorite memory you have of Tanner? Or what quality about Tanner do you try to carry forward in your life? What makes you smile when you think about Tanner? People desperately don't want their loved one to be forgotten. They don't want to be the only bearer of bringing their memory forward. So I do encourage people, again, it depends on your relationship with the griever and you know, there's some different things, but really showing up and saying, I'm holding you in my heart. What you say one time doesn't matter. It's the follow-up. It goes back to what Crystal says is, are you checking in in a month or two months? Or did you, if you love someone close 
who's had a loss, put their loss anniversary in your phone so that you're showing up at least on or before the one year, two year, three year anniversary. I have, my phone is littered with people's loss anniversaries, <laughs> you know, in my phone. But I think showing up and keeping showing up. So my motto is show up, shut up and listen. Parentheses and keep showing up. Like that's literally my grief support motto. So it isn't as much about the one time showing up. Although I do think saying, holding you in your in my heart, I hate that this happened to you. You know, I'm not religious. So when people were sending me like religious cards, I was like, I don't know why you're sending me those cards. It doesn't do anything for me. So know the person. So don't send the card that would make you feel better. Send the card that you know that person would appreciate. If you're religious and they're not, don't send them a religious card. If they're religious and you're not, send them a religious card. Yeah. You know, so meet the person because it's about their grief. It's not about your discomfort. But don't let worrying about saying the wrong thing keep you from showing up. I think that's my biggest sort of pet peeve is a lot of people, or they only showed up once and then they were done. Like check, yeah. I checked yeah. in on the grieving person and now I'm done. Yeah. Um, and usually all of my grief, all my cards that I got were within the first three weeks after Eric died. I don't remember any of them. I still have them, which is why I created my own line of cards because I went back and looked at them. Uh, those are garbage. But very few people sent me a card on the one-year anniversary, sent me a card on my first, the first Valentine's, on his birthday. Now I do. Now actually my friends send me my own empathy cards, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, even though this summer will be 10 years since my husband died. So wow. show up, shut up and keep showing up. That's the key. That's more important than the words. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I've had a few friends that I thought were really good friends check in with me initially, you know, get an update, say, you got this. And then that's, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, then. Well, and what you're talking about is often referred to as secondary losses. So we have secondary losses, like maybe we lose our house or we lose financial stability, but we often lose relationships. They're not always permanent. Like sometimes people come back around, but those are some of the untold consequences of grief is that we think of the grief in terms of death loss as losing the spouse or our brother, you know, Lacey, you lost your brother Tanner. But sometimes the fact that we're grieving and that loss means maybe Maybe you used to be friends with Tanner's friends and now they don't come around, let's say, as an example, right? Or people are just uncomfortable being around. Like I was a group of eight couples and then it was seven couples and Lisa, you know? Like it was like seven couples and Lisa. So, and most of them stayed around, but some people couldn't. So sometimes those secondary losses are temporary and they come back, but they are important for us to remember that um, there's kind of a ripple effect when it comes to loss. So the degree to which you care about this person means you have to get over your own discomfort of not being able to... Sh- a lot of times people stay away. I imagine this might be the case for you, Crystal, because they don't think there's value in just showing up and saying, Crystal, I hate that this is happening to you. Crystal, can I bring you a meal? I just, you know, I'm here if you want to talk about how crappy your day was. Like, let's, or do you want to go punch go to a boxing, you know, like go do something. It's because people show up with that belief, which we were talking about before, which is it's my job to fix. And if I can't show up and fix, then I better not show up because then what the, what am I even doing? What's my value? And that's part of why I try to demystify all this is because I think we, that's 
probably the biggest reason people stop showing up for other people is because they have the false belief that I'm supposed to be fixing and, but actually you're causing more harm when you don't show up. Yeah. Yeah. This has been such an amazing, helpful episode. This is one of my favorites because I'm always in that headspace, always. So thank you so much for sharing that value with us today. Yeah. And we're right about at our, um, hour mark. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. Um, Lisa, if our listeners wanted to kind of reach out to you, follow you, connect with you, how could they do that? Yeah. So I'd love to invite people to head to reimagininggrief.com. You can learn about all the services, the guided meditation, the individual support I offer, the work I do with companies. You can also follow me on social media at reimagininggrief. I spend most time on Instagram and I write daily invitations with a lot of the little nuggets that we talked about today. So every day I write something on Instagram and Facebook and other places at Reimagining Grief that help sort of demystify and help people feel seen. I also do host a podcast myself. Grief is a sneaky bee, I'll just say in case we don't want to swear. And that show is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And those are rich conversations with all kinds of people experiencing grief. So those are the places you can find me. And if you have questions, you can just drop me a note, DM me in the social media. I'd be happy to talk with you. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for joining us. You really were amazing. had so much value to add to our listeners and we really appreciate it. Yes. Um, so yeah, if you guys want to follow us as a podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at, no, I mean, we're on Twitter, but it does it count? I'm not so sure. On Instagram <laughs> at Hastings and we are on Facebook at Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. You can follow us all individually. I am Crystal. I am at STL underscore injector. Lacey is at Ms. Lacey Lee. And Ellen is at Ellen Maletta. And if you haven't already, head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star rate and please leave us a review. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. This has been a fabulous conversation. I'm right with Ellen. This is one of my favorites and this has so much value for myself and I believe for our audience too. Thank you all smart mamas for joining us and we will see you next time. Good night. Bye.